welcome to Our Story, a podcast from Dunwoody United Methodist Church. My name is Calissa Dodderman. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Dunwoody, and we're here today with Reverend Matt Stone, our newest associate pastor. Matt's going to be preaching for us this Sunday, and so he's got some ideas to share. Just to get everybody up to speed, we were talking last week about the story of Joseph and his brothers, starting in Genesis 37. And, well, we jump back in a little bit later, don't we, Matt? Yeah, that's right. So when when Phil left off, his, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, essentially. They, they have a debate about whether to kill him or sell him into slavery. They ultimately sell him. And, uh, and that's where the story left off last week at the end of Genesis 37. So we're actually going to be studying Genesis 45 this week. But what's happened in between Genesis 37 and 45 is really important. And you can't really understand 45 if we don't follow a little bit of where Joseph has been. So I, I really hope that you will take the time to go back and read these stories because I'm going to summarize them. But there's no chance I'm going to capture uh, the full depth and breadth of these stories. And they're just rich stories. If you like good story, these are great chapters in Scripture to read because they're, uh, they're entertain- there's an entertainment quality to them. But there's also kind of an intriguing where is this going kind of quality to them. So uh, what happens to Joseph next is that he finds himself in Egypt, in the house of a man named Potiphar, and it says that the Lord was with him, and so everything that Joseph did succeeded, and Joseph rose quickly in the ranks of Potiphar's house, but runs into a bit of a snag when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and Joseph displays a pretty significant degree of integrity in saying that this is not what's going to happen. And so he runs away. It's kind of a, in some ways it's a comical scene. In some ways it's a deeply disturbing scene. It's kind of hard to make sense really of what's going on at parts or at times in that story. But long story short, Joseph is so, or or as a result of Potiphar's wife's accusations, Joseph finds himself in jail while he's in prison he hears the story of two prisoners who've had dreams and they can't quite figure out what to make of their dreams. And so with the Lord's help, Joseph interprets those dreams and says, Hey, if you get out, remember me and tell somebody about me so that, you know, my future will not end in this prison. The, the predictions or the interpretations of those dreams comes true and, but the prisoner that Joseph ultimately foretells his freeing, uh, he does not end up helping Joseph, at least not for a couple of years. A couple of years later, Pharaoh then has a dream. And you can, you can notice the thread, right, Calissa? There's this thread of dreams throughout Joseph's story. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not sure exactly what to make of that particular thread. We hear the, the thread of, uh, begin with Joseph's dreams. But now it's switched to other people are having dreams, but somehow Joseph has insight into those dreams. I think it's a fascinating part of Joseph's tale. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that we do see over that narrative is the idea that Joseph's kind of interaction with those dreams and ability to interpret those dreams really matures alongside Joseph, right? 
I mean, I think Phil was talking last week about what a kind of annoying 17-year-old kid Joseph must have been, right? And um, we we read in chapter 37 there that those dreams were some of the things that really made his brothers dislike him so much in the first place. I mean, th- it wasn't just the dreams, obviously being a favorite child uh, and having that favoritism be very clear is probably probably part of that equation too, I would think. But, um, you know, Joseph isn't able at that point, I think, to to encounter that dream and to interpret that dream in a way that includes his brothers. It was all about him. Um, And then as he matures, as he spends this time in prison, as he has more interactions and um, gets to know other people and other ways of living and, and I think builds empathy, he's able to interpret more widely outside of himself. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I I don't know that I've really thought much about Joseph's development, but you're right. He starts off as a very immature kid. And there's a sense that the trials and hardships, I mean, for goodness sake, can you imagine what this kid has been through? He's been left for dead, sold into slavery, rose through the ranks, and then accused of seducing, falsely accused of seducing his master's wife. I mean, he's just been through so much. And yet there's a sense in which that hardship has formed him and shaped him uh, in ways that increase his capacity to uh, connect with the people around him. I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, note about Joseph's story. So, yeah, so he interprets the dreams of his fellow prisoners. That goes well. They eventually, two years later, can you imagine, by the way, what Joseph is going through in those two years? He's just left. He's just left for dead, essentially. But two years later, his former uh, fellow prisoner finally tells Pharaoh uh, that that he remembers this kid that could tell that could interpret dreams. Right? Pharaoh has a dream. He's called all of his um, uh, wise people in his courts together and said, "Hey, what does this dream mean?" Nobody can figure it out. And so Pharaoh gets desperate, and that's when uh, Joseph's friend tells Pharaoh, hey, there's this kid that might be able to help you. So Pharaoh goes, or Joseph goes in before Pharaoh, and, uh, and you know, I think this is interesting. This is in 41, chapter 41, Genesis 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, uh, I've, I've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it, and I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And listen to Joseph's response. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I think it's really interesting. You can hear Joseph's clarity that he's not the center of the story anymore. And I, I think, Calissa, that to your point, is evidence of Joseph's development. He starts out as this kid who tells dreams about himself. And now we see the switch as he goes before Pharaoh, who, by the way, is the most powerful man in the entire world at this point. And he says, this, I'm, I'm not the center of this story. It's God who's going to give you the answer that you're, that you're seeking. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something that I had never really gotten out of this story before. And I think it's a, kind of a good lesson for us, right? That even the stories that we feel like we know inside and out, we can get different things from them every time we encounter them. And I think every time I have read this story before, I <laughs> like subconsciously have images of Donny Osmond and a big shiny coat, you know, <laughs> and it's this, it's this story of, of how great a guy Joseph is and all the cool things that he's able to do. And um, I don't know, this time encountering this story, I really see 
I really see that shift in Joseph and I see a different narrative. Um, that's not about just like making Joseph this magnanimous shiny kid, um, who gets all this power and all this money, but rather it's like that inward change in his heart. Yeah. That takes time. I I think sometimes we read stories in scripture and we see, you know, from one page to the next, somebody, somebody's changed, but, and that's kind of what happens with Joseph's story in Genesis 37, he's this way. And then in Genesis uh, 39 and 40, he's a different way that represents, you know, three minutes of reading for us and yet years of development for him, which is, I think a helpful reminder for our own lives that change and transformation don't take place overnight. They don't actually take place in two or three minutes that it takes us to read one page in scripture. These are things that take place over longer periods of time. And so it's a good reminder to be patient with ourselves as as we allow the Spirit to move and work in our life in ways that will develop us and grow our capacity, kind of like God grows uh, Joseph's capacity. Joseph listens to Pharaoh's dreams. You need to go back and read those dreams. They are just strange. They're just strange dreams. Joseph interprets them, and it turns out that Joseph, uh, well, really God through Joseph, interprets the dreams accurately, and consequently, Joseph rises to incredible power within Pharaoh's house. And one of the things that, you know, I, I know many people are familiar with this, but I just want to put a point on it. This is a story of a kid left for dead in a cistern, you know, essentially in a well. He was left for dead in a well, sold by his own family, who now has risen to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, which is the same thing as saying he's the second most powerful man in the world. And I've got questions about how that kind of thing happens. And and that story ultimately plays a role in Israel's history, uh, not just in Joseph's life, but in Israel's history in fascinating ways. But I don't want to lose sight of the miraculous movement in Joseph's life. It's it, it's totally unexpected and entirely out of out of the realm of possibilities for normal life, unless God is at work. Right. So right. I think the question then is, well, okay, to what end? What is it that God's up to? And I think that's one of the interesting, one of the really interesting questions that comes out of Joseph's story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially because, as you mentioned, this this does play a role in kind of Israel's overall, in their overarching story. Um, but in some ways, it, it's, not, it's not a great role, right? This is how they get into Egypt. This is how they eventually become enslaved in Egypt as an entire people. Um, and you know, that's a dark moment. That's a dark moment in Israel's history. Um, it leads to some great things down the road, but um, but it doesn't start off super happy. So, you know, on the surface, it's it that is a question that bears asking. Yeah. So as we find ourselves in the middle of this series wrestling with the text, uh, this is one of the things that I think we wrestle with. What is it? What really is God doing? It's clear that God's doing something. But the question at this point for us is, what is it that God's up to? So as Joseph's story moves on through Genesis 41 and into 42 and 43, what we find is a famine that strikes the land, and that reaches all the way back to Canaan, where Joseph's brothers and father and mother are still living. Uh, And because of that famine, Joseph's brothers end up in Egypt. And there is a fascinating encounter 
that takes place uh, as Joseph comes to realize that his brothers, the same people who sold him into slavery, are now standing before him, essentially begging for money. And that that story plays out through Genesis 42 and 43 uh, and really into 44 before we pick our story up in 45. And, you know, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to go back and read closely the exchange that Joseph has between his brothers. Because one of the things that I love about it is how human it is. You see genuine turmoil and anguish in Joseph and... You you almost see the roller coaster of emotion, right? If if you've ever been in deep conflict with somebody, if somebody's ever hurt you uh, in, in a uh, you know in a profound way, there is a roller coaster of emotions that you go through, and you can kind of see that play out in Joseph's life. Because I, I don't know if that's something that you see in those chapters, but but that's certainly something that that I find attractive because of its humanity. Yeah. I mean, and you, you can kind of see that through Joseph's actions, right? That he he kind of wants to help them, but he's kind of helping them in a kind of minimal way to start off with. Um, and, you know, actually what we see is these brothers having kind of come and humbled themselves, um, not knowing that this is Joseph, of course, but they've come and humbled themselves and asked for help. Um, they have to do that multiple times. Yeah. Um, because things are really, really hard, and it's not—it's not just Joseph, I think, struggling there. But there's some serious um, struggling on the parts of these brothers who are having to—I mean—shame themselves, basically. And we, we know that you know honor and shame are incredibly important in this culture. Um, so, you know, this kind of broken relationship at the center of this story causes pain and shame for everybody. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially where we are culturally and historically just in our in this particular moment, this is a poignant story because his brothers are asking for help and they've not needed to do that in the past. And what I'm aware of in a way that I don't know that I've been aware of, you know, at any other time that I've read this story is how many people today are asking for help, just like Joseph's brothers come to him you know, more or less begging for help, just just desperate for some relief from this famine that has stricken the land. Uh, it bears a, maybe an uncomfortable resemblance to, I think, where so many of our people are today and, and, and being in need in ways that we haven't been in need before, whether that's material or emotional or physical. It's, it's interesting, to your point earlier, how we read we read the same stories differently because of what's happening in our life. And I think that's part of why we call this the living word of God. Every time we come to it, it presents us with something new. Uh, so, you know, if you're one of those that, for whom this story is so familiar, uh, kind of like with the prodigal son a few weeks ago, it's a story we've heard so often that it's easy to shut off in our mind. This is a great reminder that no matter how familiar how familiar you are with this story, there are still new pieces and elements and lessons for us to pull out as we come to it. So now we've finally made it from Genesis 37, where Joseph has been sold into slavery, to Genesis 45, 
fortunes have been reversed in dramatic fashion. Joseph now is the second most powerful man in the world. His brothers, you know, who had all the power as they, you know, chucked their brother into a cistern, his brothers now have no power. The situation is entirely reversed. And what we're going to explore this Sunday is the exchange that Joseph has where he finally reveals himself to his brothers in Genesis 45. Up to this point, Joseph and his brothers have had uh, have had multiple conversations, but his brothers could not recognize Joseph. And, and I, I'm not sure exactly why they couldn't recognize him. I suspect maybe it has something to do with the length of time that Joseph was so young when they last saw him, and he's now uh, an older man. Uh, and also, I suspect something uh, having to do with the with the Egyptian garb and uh, uh, I was about to say costume, but I don't think costume is quite the right no, word. no. But there 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 may have been some makeup. There may it have could have been some makeup. That's right. That's right. They're Egyptians. Um, so as we come to Genesis forty five and get ready for this Sunday, I, I want to invite you to think about three questions, and these three questions are three questions that have informed my own reading of Scripture. Uh, I certainly did not come up with them. These are questions that you'll hear uh, hear people reflect on regularly, and I want to offer them to you if you haven't heard these three questions. I think these are incredibly helpful. You know, I think one of the hardest things for us to do as lay people is to just come to the Bible and read it. And you read Scripture but then what do you do with that, right? If, if you're not theologically trained and you're not reading, you know, six volumes of commentaries on a passage, how do we think about Scripture and interact with Scripture in a way that's going to be helpful and productive in our life? I think these three questions can help us get at that. And so the first question is, what does this, say, what does this passage say about who God is, right? What do we learn from this story about who God is, the character of God, the nature of God, the way God works, God's own heart. What do we learn about God from this passage? So that's the first question. The second question is, what do we learn about humanity in this passage, right? What do I learn about myself? What do I learn about people in this passage? Because in so many different ways, Scripture holds a mirror up to our own lives, right? It helps us reflect on who we are. And, and, and you know, my, my father-in-law says self-awareness is half the battle or more than half the battle. And, and I think when we ask of Scripture, what do I learn about myself in this? I think we grow in our understanding of who we are, which helps us in turn to be more faithful, more empathetic, uh, and more compassionate to the people around us. So the first question is, what does this passage say about who God is? The second question is, what does this passage say about who we are, who humanity is? And the third question is, what does this passage say about how we are to live, right? How, how we're called to show up in the world. That's the question that we jump to most quickly, I think, particularly in the New Testament, we jump really quickly to, okay, well, what does that mean about how I should live tomorrow? It's a really important question. It's not the only question. But when you put those three questions together, what does it say about God? What's it say about me? What's it say about how to be? When you put those together, I think you can begin to encounter Scripture in a deeper way maybe than many of us have in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really helpful to have those questions in your back pocket. I think one of the things it does for us is 
keeps us from reading the Bible like we would, a, you know, history textbook or something where it's just kind of a straight line narrative. We, we know that that's not how scripture works all of the time. And so if we kind of have those probing questions that are, you know, easy to remember, um, that really, I think, helps bring us out of the temptation to treat our reading of the Bible like we would treat any other reading. We just, you know, start at the beginning, end at the end, everything just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, I, I don't want to spend too much time uh, on the story in chapter 45 because then I'd, it, I'd spoil Sunday. And Ooh. you've got to come on Sunday to hear what we're actually going to talk about. But I do want to give you a bit of a sneak peek. Okay. Uh, what, what we're going to focus on is... Um, this intensely emotional scene in the front half of the chapter, right? So the chapter is 28 verses, but we're going to spend most of our time on the first 14 verses. And you see this, this incredibly emotional scene play out before our eyes in the first few verses. And then Joseph says this. This is in verse 4. And they came closer, his brothers came closer, and Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Isn't that interesting that he's concerned for how they are doing and how they're thinking about themselves? This is not the same man. It can't be the same man that, uh, that in Genesis 37 was so wrapped up with himself that he created this animosity that led to this whole story. Anyways, you can hear the change (laughs) in Joseph's own life. Now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And Joseph has more to say about that. But in this verse and the next couple of verses, Joseph offers a clear meaning and purpose for the entire saga that he has lived. And what we see in a sense is how God works in tragedy. Not that God tra- not that God causes trauma or tragedy, but I think what we hear from Joseph is a way for us to understand how God might be working in our own lives when we go through hardship and trauma like Joseph has been through. So that's where we're going to spend some time exploring. And it's one of the more difficult passages, I think, in Scripture to reckon with. But in the end, I hope it will be one of the more helpful passages to read our own story through, right? As we wrestle with this text in Genesis 45, I think it will help us to wrestle with the text of our own lives in some really helpful ways, um, you know, either either in in um, dealing with things that have happened to us in the past, things we're going through right now, or things that that will uh, happen in the future, or maybe we have a friend or a family member who's going through something difficult. I think Joseph's story might have something really helpful to tell us about how God's working in the midst of that. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, what I hear you saying, Matt, is that what we might be able to do when we kind of tune in, hear this sermon, encounter this story again, is grow a little bit like Joseph did, right? Mm-hmm. So that we're we're growing and we're coming to a place where we can share good news 
um, own that good news and share it with our friends and neighbors. That sounds really exciting, and I can't wait to hear more on Sunday. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it, Calissa. I'm excited about it, too. It's a challenging text, but but one that I think is going to be fun to explore. So I want to encourage you one more time, go back and read Joseph's story. It's Genesis chapter 37 through 45. Uh, if you can go back and spend some time with that on your own, then as we come together to, uh, to worship, then I think uh, we collectively, we will be uh, that much better prepared to hear what God might be saying to us this week. Absolutely. Well, Matt, it's been really good to talk about this scripture with you. I, I'm looking forward to learning more this week. Likewise. Thanks, Calissa. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Our Story podcast from Dunwoody United Methodist Church. Visit us online at dunwoodyumc.org and join us for online worship every Sunday morning. This Sunday, August 16th, we'll also have outdoor worship at 8.45 a.m. in the parking lot and 7.30 p.m. in the ball field. We hope you'll join us and add your story to ours.